raised in poverty. You were raised with all the things only the richest country in this world could afford. William Connor was raised by lost parents. You were raised in a Christian home with a godly mother and a godly father. William Connor was raised in an empty religion without Jesus Christ. You're raised in a Bible preaching church with one of the greatest preachers alive, Edward Maccabee, as your pastor. William Connor never went to school a day in his life. You've been to school all your life. You're about to go to college and to graduate school. And then he had this little poem he, he gave over and over. He said, I didn't go to college to get taken seriously. Proverbs 22, 6, about training up a child the way he should go. They were active members of a good independent Baptist church. Jeremiah had been homeschooled, had been deeply involved in some tremendous spiritual ministries for Christ. He had been away from home in the state of Wisconsin, taking part in a ministry there, had gotten with a wrong friend. They'd spent a day AWOL from their ministry just wasting time. They'd gone to the movies, which he had never done before, and they'd finally met and picked up some girls, and Jeremiah had become infatuated with one of those girls. With little money and pleading parents, Jeremiah soon returned home to Seattle, Washington, but his heart had left home and his parents. He was a rebel, a prodigal son, and seemed foolishly determined to go all the way to the hog pen. His deliberate spiritual blindness prevented him from seeing the ultimate destruction toward which he was headed. At home, he began defying his parents' rules. He became a bad influence on his younger siblings. His dad and mom were trying to be patient with him, but they finally came to the point that they had to do something about his negative influence in the family. Jeremiah's father sat down with his son, and with love he said, Son, we want you in our home but we cannot have your negative influence on your younger siblings. If you want to stay in our home, you're going to have to live by our rules or you're going to have to leave. Now, I'll share more about that later. In Matthew chapter 4, verse 13, the Bible says that Jesus leaving Nazareth came and dwelt in Capernaum. Now, I want to pause right here and get your response. Just watch the screen. I want you to fill in the blanks for me, all right? Jesus was born in the city or town of, talk to me, Bethlehem. That is correct, and you can see it there on the screen. He was raised in the city of, somebody name it for me. What city was he raised in? The city of Nazareth. In fact, he spent 30 years of his life in Nazareth. Now, do you see the distance going from Bethlehem up to Nazareth. And the next one may be a little harder, but hopefully you'll never forget it after the message this morning. Jesus made his home and carried out his ministry in the city of what? Jesus made his home. He lived in what city? Anybody know? He made his home he lived in the city of Capernaum. Say it with me, would you please? Capernaum. The three key cities in Jesus' life besides Jerusalem were, of course, name them please, Bethlehem, Nazareth, and Capernaum. You see them all on the screen. On the screen are the four main cities that were a part of the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we read, and leaving Nazareth, 
he came, see where Nazareth is, and Nazareth is way up there, and so he didn't have very far to go, about 15 miles to go to get to the city of Capernaum. He came and dwelt. He lived in Capernaum, which is upon the sea coast. You see the Sea of Galilee right there on Capernaum, which is upon the sea coast in the borders of Zabulon and Naphtali. And this was the whole area. Let me see. Uh, is Zabulon and Nephthalim, I think they're mentioned on the map. Anyway, that Zabulon and Nephthalim was the whole area there. That it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah, Isaiah the prophet, saying, The land of Zabulon and the land of Nephthalim, by the way of the sea, beyond Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. And there's the whole area of Zebulon. There's the whole area of Nephthalim. And that was beyond Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. There is, and, and there is the Jordan River and there is the Sea of Galilee. And then he says, and Galilee was this whole big area here. The people which sat in darkness saw great light. And to them which sat in the region and shadow of death, light is sprung up. Notice that. They were in darkness and light has come. Now, Matthew chapter 11 verse 20 is much later in Jesus' ministry. Then began Jesus to upbraid the cities wherein most of his mighty works were done because they repented not. Here's what he said. Woe unto thee, Chorazin. Woe unto thee, Bethsaida. Now, Chorazin is a city just north of Capernaum. Are you watching the map? Do you see where Capernaum was? Do you see where Chorazin and Bethsaida was? Bethsaida um, was just east of Capernaum. So these were sister cities to the city of Capernaum close to the northern edge of the Sea of Galilee. He said, for if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon. Now you see Tyre and Sidon, they were two cities along the coast of the Mediterranean Sea, quite a distance away from Capernaum. And he says, if these mighty works which were done in these three sister cities of Capernaum, Chorazin and Bethsaida had been done in those other cities of Tyre and Sidon, they and it's about 40 miles from one to the other here, he says they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I say unto you, it shall be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon at the day of judgment than for you. And thou Capernaum, and here is one of the most solemn verses in all of the word of God to me. Thou Capernaum, which art exalted unto heaven. Why were they exalted to heaven? Because Jesus lived in their city. The light of God, God shone in that city like no other city in all of the history of the world. Thou Capernaum, which art exalted unto heaven, shalt be brought down to hell. Now Jesus does something in the next phrase that no human being could have ever done except the Lord Jesus Christ, as far as I know. He says, for if the mighty works, he says, here is how history itself could have been different. Now, sometimes we say, 
I wonder what would have happened if this had happened instead of that had happened. I wonder, see, last week I was in San Antonio and Houston. And so, you know, we might say, wonder what would have happened if I had been in Austin last week and in San Antonio and Houston this week. And we can say things like that. The truth is, we don't have any idea what might have been different. We don't know the answers, but Jesus did. Jesus gives one of those here. He said, if the mighty works which have been done in thee had been done in Sodom. You remember the city of Sodom and Gomorrah that were destroyed by fire and brimstone from heaven. He said, it would have remained until this day. He said, if Sodom and Gomorrah had had the light of God that that Capernaum and Bethsaida and Chorazin had had, he said, they would have never been destroyed. But I say unto you that it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for thee. And then there's one other verse I want you to read with me, please, from Luke chapter 12, verse 48. Read it out loud, everybody, would you please? For unto whomsoever much is given, of him shall be much required. A number of years ago, I was in what was for me an enlightening conversation with a good preacher friend of mine. He is a very diligent Bible student. And we were discussing a very rebellious young lady. And this preacher looked at me and he made this statement. And that ultimately became the seed from which this whole message was born. He said to me, Brother Davis, her sin is more dangerous than other people's sin. And I said, what what do you mean? I, I, I said, I don't get it. He said, oh, Brother Davis, she is in far greater danger than other people like her. And, and again, I said, I, I don't understand. What do you mean? He said, you see, that young lady is not just sinning. She is sinning against great light that registered with me right away he said her sin is not just anybody's sin she is sinning against great light you see there are blessings that God pours out on everybody on the face of the earth virtually everybody on the face of the earth is blessed by God with food and clothing and sunlight and rain and shelter and some portion of health and friendships and strength and family relationships. But did you know there is one, that's uh, my two oldest daughter, or my oldest daughter, my youngest daughter, and their husbands there, and they, they were at our house that day. Did you know there is one blessing that is given by God that supersedes and exceeds and goes way beyond every other blessing you've ever experienced or you ever will experience, and that blessing is spiritual light. Read it with me. Would you please out loud? 
the single greatest blessing of all of life is spiritual light and spiritual truth. The prophet Isaiah prophesied it. Matthew wrote about it. The people which sat in darkness. And you and I could be included in that description because at some point in our lives, we've all been in darkness. The people which sat in darkness saw great light. To them which sat in the region and shadow of death, light is sprung up. Simeon held the baby Jesus. And do you remember what he said? He called the baby Jesus a light to lighten the Gentiles. Who's the Gentiles? That's you and me. Jesus came to turn on the light for you and me. John 1, 4. In Jesus was life, and the life was the light of men. Now, probably no other city in the history of the world had the opportunities and the spiritual light that did the city of Capernaum. It apparently had a very good beginning. Whenever it was established, it appears that Capernaum was named after the prophet Nahum who wrote the book of Nahum in the Old Testament. Capernaum meant the village of Nahum or the village of comfort. Capernaum had a strategic location. It was on the northeast corner of the Sea of Galilee. We read it there, Capernaum, which is upon the seacoast. So you see where it is there? I read that if you draw a crossroads for travel in that part of the world for the time when Jesus lived there, that crossroads would be the city of Capernaum. When God chose a land for his people, he chose a little, tiny, narrow strip of land along the eastern coast of the Mediterranean Sea known as the land of Israel. And if you look at the map, you notice that Israel forms what has been called a land bridge connecting the three continents of Africa, Asia, and Europe. And if you were to draw a road on that land bridge connecting those three continents, that road could easily logically pass right through the city of Capernaum. We're also told that the city of Capernaum was the most densely populated city in all the region of Galilee. Lots of people lived there. And it was also a very di diversely populated city as well. People from many nations passed through the city of Capernaum. There were also a large number of Jews who lived in that city. So Capernaum had a strategic location and Capernaum also had a great spiritual opportunity. Imagine this with me. Capernaum was the city where Jesus chose to live, set up his headquarters and carry out his ministry. Matthew 9.1 referred to Capernaum as Jesus' own city. In Mark 2 and 9, it refers to Jesus being in a house in Capernaum. John 2 referred to Jesus, his mother, his earthly brothers, and his disciples going down to Capernaum. At least twice we're told that Jesus preached in Capernaum, can you imagine standing and watching as Jesus stood and preached in the city of Capernaum? In John 6, we're told that Jesus taught in the city of Capernaum. We're also told that when people came looking for Jesus, where did they go? They didn't go to Jerusalem. 
They didn't go to Bethlehem. They didn't go to Nazareth. They didn't go to Tyre. They didn't go to Sidon. If you were looking for Jesus in Jesus' day, where'd you go? You went to the city of Capernaum. If you read through the Gospels, you'll see the Holy Spirit records 33 miracles Jesus did. And a total of about 33 that Jesus performed. Of course, there are many others that weren't named. But did you know 18 of those miracles, more than half of the recorded miracles of Jesus took place in or around the city of Capernaum. Imagine living in Capernaum during the time of Jesus and one night in the middle of the night, a violent storm wakes you up. Your whole house is shaking. The rain is pouring. The wind is blowing. And because you live on the sea coast, you're right next to the sea. You think to yourself right away, boy, I hope there are not any boats out there on the Sea of Galilee because if there are, they are in big trouble. The next morning, on every street, in every house, even in the gate of the city, the people are talking about what a horrific storm it was the night before. Violent wind, huge waves, terrific rain. And everybody's amazed because what they're saying is this. Did you notice that it became calm all at once? I mean, it was this horrible storm and just like that, it went calm. And then the word begins to spread. Because the disciples of Jesus had finally landed on the shore and they start telling what happened, that Jesus was asleep in the boat the night before and the boat began to fill with water. And they looked at him and said, Master, they woke him up and they said, Master, carest thou not that we perish? And Jesus rose up and rebuked the wind and the waves and told the sea to calm down. And just like that, all at once, he, the master of the sea, spoke and the sea went totally calm. It was at Capernaum where the centurion begged Jesus to heal his servant. And Jesus just spoke a word and the servant, a distance away, was instantly healed and ran and jumped and rejoiced. It was at Capernaum that Jesus paid taxes to the wicked, corrupt government of Rome, teaching us that we have to pay our taxes whether we like it or not. It was at the city in Capernaum. Excuse me, it was Capernaum. At the synagogue where a demon-possessed man went in and spoke identifying Jesus as being the Christ and Jesus cast the demon out and people left the synagogue that day and went everywhere talking about that and everybody wanted to know who it was. What happened? It was near Capernaum where Jesus walked to the boat on top of the water. You and I can't do that. It was at Capernaum where men tried to get to Jesus and the house was so filled with people they couldn't get in. And they climbed up on top of the roof, ripped the roof off the house to let that man sick of the palsy down to Jesus. And Jesus forgave his sins and healed him. 
It was at Capernaum that Jesus raised the 12-year-old daughter of Jairus back to life from the dead. And it was from Capernaum that Jesus commissioned and sent out the 70 to announce his kingdom. Are you seeing this? All of this. One city in the history of the world got this You'll live in Austin. You can live in Austin for a hundred years from birth to death and the city of Austin never see anything like this. It was near Capernaum where Jesus preached his incredible bread of life sermon. In Luke chapter four, when Jesus went down to Nazareth, the people said to him at Nazareth, whatsoever We've heard that you've done up in Capernaum. You do that here as well. We're hearing about all these things you're doing in Capernaum. How about doing some of those miracles here? Uh-uh. Jerusalem was the capital. Jerusalem was the holy city. Even Jerusalem did not have the spiritual blessings, privileges, and opportunities that Capernaum had. And read it with me, would you please, everybody? The single greatest blessing of all of life is spiritual light. The second truth, read it with me please. God offers this light to every person. God offers this wonderful blessing of spiritual light to every single person who ever lives. Here it is, John chapter one, verse nine. That was the true light which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. Nobody is left out by our gracious God. John 8, 12, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Here is the answer to the question, are the heathen really lost? And the answer is yes, they are. And the justification for that is that they have rejected the light they have, however much light it is. Can I tell you something? You cannot walk outside today Look at the trees, the animals, the grass, the sky, the clouds. You cannot do that and say, it just happened. You cannot walk outside at night. God turns on his spiritual light during the day and during the night. You walk outside at night. I stopped at the end of my driveway some months ago. I got out of my car and I looked up and the sky was just filled with stars. And I stood and praised God on the spot for his greatness and his glory. I don't care where you live in this world. Whether you live in the jungle of a city like Austin or you live in the jungle of an Africa, you cannot deny that there is a God, God turns his light on for everybody to see. Romans 10, 1, 19, because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has showed it unto them. God shows every man that he is God, the creator. For the invisible things of God, from the creation of the world, from his creation are clearly seen. He cannot, God cannot be seen with human eyes, but they are clearly seen and you cannot deny it. Being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead. And read the rest of it with me, please, out loud, everybody. So that they are without excuse. Now underline those two words right there, without excuse. Listen to me, every person under my voice this morning, you are without excuse. 
And everybody outchander today is without excuse. Why? Because every man, watch the screen, has had God turn on some light for him to see by. Because that when they knew God, every person at some time knew God. Every liberal, every socialist, every atheist, every agnostic, every unbeliever, every skeptic at some time knew God. Because that when they knew God, what is their problem? They didn't want to listen to what God had to say to them. They glorified him not as God, neither were thankful. What is their problem? They were not grateful for God's blessings, but they became vain in their imaginations and their foolish heart was darkened. Every man has some level of light and he goes from whatever level of light he has to more and more light or he goes into darkness. God doesn't want anybody to go to hell. I heard a missionary tell the story of how a tribe of people came to the missionary and asked the missionary to come and preach the gospel. And several weeks later, the missionaries made the long journey to a remote area of the jungle. They were taken into a village. He said, we went past hut after hut, after hut, until we came to a big, beautiful hut right in the middle of the village. And the missionary stopped and said, what is this? And the natives said, we decided we would build a church before you got here so that God would know that we were ready for him. Wow. What did they do? None of them were even saved at that point. But God gave them a certain amount of light and they said, God, we want more of your light. God, we are serious about this. We want your light. We will take your light. Now, I don't know for sure, but my guess is that a whole lot of those people got saved. You know what? They were hungry for the light. Skip a couple of things here. Number three, read it with me, will you please? God gives this great light so that man might repent. What was the purpose of Jesus coming to the city of Capernaum anyway? Did he come there just to entertain people? Did he come there just to have a place to stay? There were many cities where he could have lived. He came there because God wanted Jesus there. The father wanted his son there so that those people would have the opportunity to repent. Matthew eleven twenty, Then began Jesus to upbraid the cities wherein most of his mighty works were done. These were the cities of Capernaum, Chorazin, and Bethsaida because they repented not. They heard the truth and they refused to repent. Can you imagine this? Can you imagine having Jesus himself, not just an ordinary preacher, Jesus, everybody else is ordinary. No one else is on the level with Jesus. And they had Jesus himself in their city. They heard him preach. They heard him teach. Who knows how many miracles he actually did. We have 18 recorded for us. And this was the area. They may have had hundreds of miracles and they would not repent. Now, can I tell you something? God never does anything in your life or my life to impress us. 
God never does anything to entertain us. God does what he does in your life because he expects a response from your part. By the way, God doesn't judge everybody the same way. God's judgment is not based, listen to me, it is not based on what he gives to your neighbor. God's judgment is based on what he gives to you. Some time back I said to a young man, I looked at him and I said, young man, you think you're going to get by with what you're doing because you're thinking about all those people out yonder in the world who do it and get by with it. You don't realize you are not everybody out there in the world. You have been given greater light than most of the people out there and that's the reason that you comparing yourself with others is so foolish. You say, <coughs> well, I'm doing so much better than so-and-so. Maybe God has not allowed so-and-so to hear what you've heard, see what you've seen, experience what you've experienced. Now, I don't understand all this. I just know it's true. God gives greater opportunities to some people than he does to others. Who is that on the screen? Call his name. Who had more opportunity than any other man in the history of the world? Turned on it and walked away from it and betrayed his master. Think about it. Phenomenal. Capernaum, Chorazin, Bethsaida had greater opportunities than Tyre, Sidon, and Sodom specifically, and than most other cities throughout the history of the world. Now, you hear preachers talking sometimes about different areas where you can preach. Uh, Brother Thompson and Pastor Thompson and I were talking about the other night, different cities throughout the world. And every place is hard to reach. One will be hardened sinners over here. One will be all these different religions. But the truth is this, some cities are more responsive to the gospel than others are. And some, that is true at different times in history. Some areas you go to are more responsive than other areas. Jonah went down to Nineveh and he didn't even want to go. God sent him down there. He wasn't even happy when they had a tremendous response. Virtually the whole city of Nineveh fell down in sackcloth and ashes repenting. From the king of Nineveh to the animals in the field, they were humbling themselves before God. Wouldn't it be city uh, or wouldn't it be something if your city or my city did that today? Wouldn't it be something if a major city repented like that today? Some areas where Paul preached were responsive. Others were rebellious. God judges a man not on how much he does, but on how much he does with what God has given him to do with in Matthew 11, Jesus said he knew how history could have been different. He said, if Tyre and Sidon, those two coastal cities, 60 to 70 miles away without a gospel witness, if they had had what Chorazin and Bethsaida would have had, they would have repented. If Sodom would have had what Capernaum had, it would have never been destroyed. What a phenomenal thought. I wonder how many nations God is saying to America today, if that nation would have had what America had, she would have already repented. If that city over there in Africa 
had had what Austin, Texas had, that city would have already repented. I preached in Chicago some time back. And I wonder how many cities throughout this world, if they had the light that Chicago had, would have already repented. And I wonder if somebody, if God isn't saying to somebody right here this morning. Over on the other side of the world today is a Christian that if I had given him your resources, your money, the truth you've received, your talents, your abilities, he would have honored me with them. What are you doing with them? Maybe there's a teenager, look at the picture, in Afghanistan right now. A war-torn province. And if he had the opportunity to be in a Christian home with Christian parents in a Christian school or a home school, can you imagine? I want to tell you, he would have done something with it. God's saying, he would have honored me with it. Read it with me on the screen, everybody. The single greatest blessing of all of life is spiritual light. God offers this light to every person. God gives this great light so that man might repent. And number four is very important. Read it. The privileges of great light are also a great responsibility. The privileges, the opportunities of great light are a great responsibility. God is going to judge you and me. Not based on what we've done, but based on what we've done in relation to the privileges, the talents, the blessings, the opportunities that God puts in our hands. Come here, come here. Let me show you. Yeah, here. Run up here right quick. Let me show you what I'm talking about. Now, come on up here. Come on up here. All right? Here's the way your life looks. The Bible talks about how God daily loads us with benefits. And the Bible talks about God gives us gifts. What's your name? Caleb. Caleb, Caleb, hold your hand out like this. All right? Here's what I want you to see. God has placed in Caleb's hands all kinds of blessings, all kinds of privileges, all kinds of opportunities, all kinds of talents, all kinds of abilities. If you were to look at what God, if you could even begin to see it, the truth is he is overloaded with these things. They, he's got so many gifts handed to him by God that his hands are full and overrunning with all these talents, blessings, privileges, opportunities, responsibilities. His hands are overrunning. He can't hardly even hold them all. God looks down at Caleb and God says, Caleb, don't you dare ever compare yourself to somebody out yonder in the world. You always look at what I've put in your hands, God says, because God says I'm holding you responsible for what I put in your hands. I've given you something. Thank you, Caleb. You better do something with what I gave you. Now, some time back, I made a list. 
I suggest you make your own list. Here is my list. My blessings, my privileges, my opportunities. I was born, that's me, on the screen. That's my daddy holding me, 1952, I think it was, and my mom holding me. I was born to Christian parents who raised me in a Christian home. I was the youngest of six children. I was taught all my life. I was cute one time. I hadn't been cute for a long time, but I was cute back yonder. I was born, I was taught all my life about the Lord Jesus Christ. That he was the virgin born son of God, lived a perfect life, served others, died on the cross to take away my sins, literally rose from the dead with an eternal glorified body that would never die, ascended back to heaven, seated on the right hand of the Father, interceding on my behalf. He's coming back again. And that if I would repent and believe I could be saved, he would bless my life. I was taught that my whole life. I was saved at a very early age miraculously healed of rheumatic fever at five years of age. Sitting in a hospital in Greenville, South Carolina, 50 miles from home, missing my mom, my dad, my brothers, and my sisters, the youngest of six children. I, I'd been in the hospital for days or weeks. I don't remember how long it was, but I had rheumatic fever. And I remember on a Sunday afternoon, looking up toward heaven and saying, Dear God, I'm so tired of being in this hospital room. And dear God, I'm tired of being sick. And God, I remember all those men coming out to my house and anointing me with oil and praying for me, and I don't know why I have to still be sick. And God, these treatments, I don't like all these treatments I'm having to take. I remember they... I don't know why they did this. But I can remember this like it's yesterday, I promise you. I had to do this for weeks, every single day. My mother would take the lid off of a, uh, a canning jar. She would put warm water in that lid, mix salt in that warm water. I'm a five-year-old boy. And I had to suck that warm water up my nose. I did that for weeks. And I couldn't feel, I don't, to this day, I don't know why I did it. I just remember doing it. And I remember saying, dear God, I am so tired of being so sick. Dear God, would you please make me well? Honest. Just like that. God healed me sitting in that hospital room that day. He did. You know what? Two weeks ago, I got sick with some kind of flu bug or cold or something. And I begged God to heal me. And he said, get well yourself. Take care of yourself. Ultimately, he's, don't misunderstand me. I, that wasn't exactly accurate. God is the one who heals all our diseases. If you ever get well, you get well because he helps you get well. But it, it's like God said, no, nope, I'm going to let you get over this one. And, you know, I took care of myself. I, I loaded up on garlic and vitamin C and 
first responders and, and uh, essential oils. And finally, I'm, I'm just about well now. My voice is still a little raspy this morning. But anyway, but back then, they came in the next day. And they could, the doctor came in the next morning, couldn't find anything wrong with me. God healed me. Now, my mother taught me to read. She showed me before she died the books and records she taught me to read that she used. My dad taught me to pray. My dad had me crawl up on the bed next to him on the second floor of our house at 503 West Robinson Street in Gaffney, South Carolina. And he would pray a sentence and have me pray a sentence. Pray another sentence, have me pray another sentence. And so on. My dad gave me 10 cents every time I memorized a scripture. Anytime I wanted money, I just had to memorize scripture. The Ten Commandments hung on the wall of our living room. I was, here's all these blessings. Young people, I was born and raised in America. The Christian nation that had the Bible as the bedrock of the foundation of our nation. I have known the blessings and freedom of freedom and prosperity all my life. All my life I've had a Bible. I never remember a time in my life when I didn't have, how many of you have a Bible? Lift it up. Wave it around. Wave it around. Now, can I tell you something? There are more places in, hold it up and look around each other. Look, look around at this room. There are more places in this world, far more places where they can't do that than there are where they can. I was in Romania back in 1992. We stood on the street corner and started passing out Bibles. We were almost mobbed. We had a lady that reached out, took a Bible, and started kissing it and saying, I can't believe it. I actually have a Bible in my hand. I, I never knew a time in my life when I didn't have a Bible. I was given a good education, including college and graduate school. I was taught how to play an instrument, the trumpet. We got a trumpet up here. I have never played a pocket trumpet. I was telling uh, your music man last night. Is he in here? Where is he? You reckon he'll be upset if I use his horn? I used to play the trumpet all the time. Hardest thing I had to do the day I got right with God was give God my trumpet. I haven't. Now, I'm going to crack notes all over the place, but I'm going to play trumpet for a minute. tell your music man that I defiled his trumpet, okay? Now, I was taught to play an instrument. Every key decision of my life, meeting my wife, going to the church where I pastor, was given because there was a day when in my heart and in my mind, 
I was kneeling in an altar and God said, I want your trumpet. And I said, God, you can have everything but my trumpet. And God said to me, if you don't give me your trumpet, you can just go back to your seat. I remember it. And in my heart and my mind, I thought I was ruining my whole life. I laid my trumpet down on the altar. I said, God, you can take it. God, you're ruining my life, but you can do it. <laughs> you know what? It was the beginning of my life if I hadn't laid it down. <clears throat> you know what? I was raised and taken to Sunday school, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, Friday night, to a good, solid, Bible-believing church with strong pastors who loved me and prayed for me and preached to me the Word of God. I remember famous preachers such as Dr. Percy Ray coming to our house. I remember this man coming to our house after midnight one night and my mother preparing a meal for him. I married the most wonderful Christian lady God ever made on the face of the earth. She encourages me continually. My father-in-law and mother-in-law love me and he's been a godly pastor for over 40 years. I didn't realize what a privilege this next thing was. When it happened to me, I began working on a church staff. That's me right in the middle of that picture sitting on the platform. I began working on church staff when I was 16 years of age as a minister of music. God has given me four daughters, four son-in-laws, 12 grandchildren who all love God and all are faithful in church right now. I was given the opportunity to come to Lincoln, Illinois and become pastor of Park Meadows Baptist Church at 23 years of age and privileged to spend my life there and raise my family there for 36 years. I have shared the platform with some of the wisest, most greatly used men of God in all of history. My wife and I have visited over 20 different mission fields all around the world. I have preacher friends who encourage me. What am I saying? I'm saying God has put in my hands blessings, opportunities, a little bit of knowledge, truth, wisdom, his power, his principles, a few talents here and there. And you know what? That is a big responsibility that I dare not take lightly. Listen to me. If you have or have had a godly father... You have a privilege not many others have and you are responsible for that privilege. If you have a godly mother, you have a privilege that not many other people have and you are responsible before God for that privilege. If you have been taught and had the opportunity to read and study the word of God, you have a privilege not many others have. You're responsible before God for that privilege. If you were raised in America, you have a privilege not many others have, and you are responsible before God for that privilege. If you have heard the truth about, you know, one of the things, let me throw this in right here. I was going to leave it out, but I think I'm going to put it in. Um, these are the headies. They were our missionaries in Romania for years. He told me a story about when he was working with some gypsy children in the city of Cicelli. And they noticed that a lot of the children did not have socks. It was cold weather. And for Christmas, they gave them socks. And they gave each of the children a pair of socks, some candy, and a toy. Later on, Mrs. Hetty was in class time talking to the children. She said, tell me what you got for Christmas. She went around the room and this child said, I got some socks, some candy, and a toy. And she thought, well, that's nice. And the next child, what'd you get for Christmas? I got some socks, some candy, 
and a toy. The next child, I got some socks, some candy, and a toy. All any of the children got for Christmas is what the missionaries gave them. You American young people, can I tell you something? If you're not careful, you're almost too blessed. You tend to take it for granted. I tell parents all the time, if you've got a rebellious child, get them out of the United States of America. Get them to a third world country. I was in, I was in the Philippines several years ago and we went and visited this area. It was right on the coast. It was a shanty town. All of the people there, none of them had permission to live there. The government just overlooked it. These people had just gotten some boards and some wood and built shacks and there were hundreds of people living in shacks and the whole area, are you listening to me? The whole area where they lived was over the top of a sewage dump. All the sewage for the whole city ran right through there and these people lived right above all that sewage. Brother Thompson, you've seen a few places like that, I imagine. And you know, you, you, young people, you, you live in nice homes. You live in America. You've got all of this. I say to parents, get your children out of this country and get them to a different country and maybe they will wake up. If you've heard the truth about salvation, that there's a horrible hell to be avoided and a glorious heaven where you can go and it's only by trusting Jesus as your Savior if you've heard truths about life and about marriage, if you've heard truths about God working in people's lives, if you've seen the grace of God helping people solve their problems and deal with their hurts, and if you've heard all that, let me tell you, you're blessed like few people on the face of God's earth. A church member criticized her pastor because he was preaching against sin in the lives of Christians in the church. After all, she said, Sin in the life of a believer is different than sin in the lives of unsaved people. Yes, her pastor said, sin is worse in your life than somebody else's because you've had the privilege to hear the truth. Acts 17, the apostle Paul was at Athens. They had not heard the truth. It was a city filled with idolatry and Paul preached and said to them, the times of this ignorance God winked at but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent. When God chooses to reveal his truth, he doesn't choose to reveal his truth so you can play around with it and say, well, maybe I like this, maybe I don't like this. God holds you responsible if he chooses to give you his truth. Now, um, nobody gets by with doing wrong but you're more likely to get mercy instead of judgment if you acted ignorantly. For instance, if, if you as a child don't understand that what you did was wrong, your parents probably won't deal with you as harshly as if you do understand what you did was wrong and you still did it anyway. I got God's choice by dating. How'd I do that? I did it ignorantly. My friend Alan Ives, 
continued as a rock musician. That's a funny picture. For a year after being saved. How did he do that? He did it ignorantly. Now, I've run into people who have gotten saved and then gone a long time without getting baptized or getting in church, but they did it ignorantly. And you know, you who are in a Bible preaching church like this week, and week, week in and week out, you better be careful about dabbling in sin. You say, well, others do it and get by, but you are not others. I talk to a 20-year-old backslider and while I was talking to him, I said, you cannot do what everybody else does. And I started adding up all the hours that he had been in church. 20 years old, in church from the day he was born, I calculated four hours a week, four times 50 weeks of the year, 200 hours times 20 4,000 hours he had been in church. Some of you have been in that long as well. I said, you know what? There have been 4,000 hours you've heard the word of God taught, preached, and proclaimed. You've learned all this truth besides all the training you got at home. And I said, you are responsible for all that truth. 1 Corinthians, or excuse me, 1 Chronicles 13 records the story of the Ark of the Covenant being taken by the Philistines, how they handled it and what they did with it. Do you know what the Philistines did? They put the ark on the back of a cart pulled by two cows and sent it back to Israel. When it got back to Israel, the Israelites tried to do the same thing and the oxen stumbled and the cart tilted and started to fall and Uzzah was standing there, reached up to steady the ark and God struck him dead because Israel could not get by with what the Philistines could get by with. Did you know, once you've ever been in a church like this, if you ever try to go to a liberal church, you'll get in trouble with God. Now, all across America are young men and women who once sat in Bible-believing churches and heard the truths of God's word. They once sat in Christian schools or home schools with godly caring teachers and parents and today they are cold-hearted and out backslidden and out of church and their sin is not just any sin. It is extraordinary sin because they are sinning against great light. Once you have great light, you dare not just walk away from it. John 19, Jesus was talking to Pilate. Pilate said, don't you know that I can do this or this? And Jesus said, Thou couldst have no power at all against me except it were given thee from above. Therefore he that delivered me unto thee hath a greater sin. I think he was talking about Judas there. Judas betrayed Jesus, but he turned around, threw the coins down in the temple, went back and hung himself. He could not live with himself. His was the greater sin. There are degrees of sin. In Numbers 14, the children of Israel had come to the place called Kadesh Barnea. It meant the holy place in the desert. From there, they were supposed to go into the promised land. They rebelled against Moses and Joshua and were talking about making a leader and going back into Egypt. And Moses fell on his face and said, God, please forgive them. And the Lord said, I have pardoned according to my work. 
according to thy word. But as truly as I live, all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord because all those men which have seen my glory, my miracles, which I did in Egypt and in the wilderness. He said, you saw those miracles, the plague after plague culminating in the death of the firstborn, then the crossing of the Red Sea. You saw those miracles and have now tempted me these 10 times and not hearkened to my voice. Surely they shall not See the land which I swear unto their fathers, neither shall any of them that provoke me see it. God said, you're responsible. Leviticus 10 is the story of Nadab and Abihu. They were the sons of Aaron, the high priest of Israel. Their position was to be priest of God. They were in line to be the great high priest, a type of the Lord Jesus, bearing the people before God. That wasn't all. Nadab was the firstborn. How many of you here today are firstborn in your family? Let me see your hands. Did you know that is a special position of privilege all by itself? You are supposed to set the example for your younger brother. That was what Nadab was supposed to do. And Leviticus chapter 10 tells how they took the censer and offered strange fire before God. They didn't get by with it. There went out fire from the Lord and devoured them. They were killed on the spot. Daniel 5, Belshazzar defied God. He had this massive party. He stood up in front of everybody at one of the biggest parties in all of history, drank wine out of the golden and silver vessels from the temple in Jerusalem. He praised the gods of gold and silver, brass, iron, wood, using the holy, sanctified, set-apart vessels, sanctified for God alone. And the Bible said, in the same hour came forth fingers of a man's hand. God's hand, don't miss it, starts writing on the wall. Meany, meany, tekel, yafarsin. The king is so frightened, check it out, his knees started knocking together. He's so frightened, he calls for Daniel. Daniel comes in, looks up and said, yep, I recognize that handwriting, that's my father's handwriting. And I can tell you what I need to tell you about it, but I need to tell you something else first, Mr. King. You know about your father Nebuchadnezzar and what he went through, how he rebelled against the opportunity and privilege that was given to him and God smote him and he wound up like a wild beast in the wilderness for seven years. And thou his son, O Belshazzar, hast not humbled thine heart though you knew all of this. You had the light, Belshazzar. You knew it and you still did this foolishness that you are doing. Excuse me for a minute here. I was 17 years of age. That's my picture. Saved at five, surrendered my life to the Lord at 15, sitting on the front pew at Northside Baptist Church in Gaffney, South Carolina. It was November and it was our annual missions conference. My pastor, Edward Maccabee, had brought in a great black preacher to be the keynote speaker each evening. Brother William Connor had been called the giant of the Caribbean. He stood six and a half feet tall, was born, raised, and started the Baptist work on the island of St. Kitts in the British West Indies. As a boy, working, actually it was just last, a week ago Sunday, that church in, that church right there celebrated their 50th anniversary. And Brother Connor has been going to heaven for several years. As a boy, working at a Coca-Cola plant, 
A bottle exploded and he lost one eye. If you look closely, you can see his left eye is blind. You could see the white glazed over eyeball. He had been raised in poverty with seven other children. His parents had most of those children while living together without being married and he was excited to be able to tell folks his parents were married when he was born. He was born in wedlock. He never attended school. Somehow or other he learned to read and became an avid reader and a self-taught, well-educated, brilliant man. He really was. He would often say that he raised himself up by his own bootstraps. He was raised in the Anglican church and served as an altar boy, visited the United States, went to a Methodist church and got saved, went back and studied the Bible and decided he was supposed to be a Baptist, had a missionary come over and baptize him, and he started a Sunday school that became a church that became two churches and five missions. And by the time he died, he was given a state funeral with state honors. He had personally met the Queen of England and was given by the queen. You see that thing on his lapel there? That was, he was William Connor, OBE, the Order of the British Empire. He was given that personally by the queen. He never married and would look you right in the eyes and say, I've stayed pure all my life. When he came to the United States, he would eat at our table. He would often stay in our home. He didn't want to stay somewhere else. If they put him somewhere else, he'd call my daddy and say, come and get me. I want to stay at your house. He loved my dad and my mom, tried to get my daddy to come to his island. Daddy never did. One night in November of 1968, William Connor, this is the picture, was preaching as only he could. His tall black figure commanded respect. His one good eye would stir you and his blind eye would freeze your attention. He was preaching about how we must serve God and let nothing stop or hinder us from doing what God had for us to do. I believe the title of his message was Press On and he used the story of how Columbus pressed on against the odds to discover America and halfway through the message, he left the platform. He left the pulpit. He walked across the platform and stood right in front of me. I was sitting on the front row right in front of him. And for two or three minutes, the Holy Spirit of God used William Connor as his mouthpiece to me. I can still see in my mind's eye William Connor, I'm sitting right about there. And his long finger reached all the way out there. And it was almost like it was touching my nose, though it was still several feet away. He looked at me and he preached right to me. 